Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Trust you had a good week in Christ, and uh, it's a joy to gather together this morning. Chillier weather than usual for uh, Southern California. I'm walking a little, little gingerly this morning. I'm battling through some uh, lower back pain, uh, back, back spasms, and uh, I've, my wife actually put my socks on for me this morning. So, and I had Derek tie my shoelaces. <laughs> so I feel really, uh, very weak. And it's a good thing for my heart, though, and ministering uh, at the church. And it's God's way of reminding me that I'm not getting any younger. Uh, my body is definitely decaying. Uh, I can physically experience that myself. And um, even uh, this past Sunday, you know, even last Sunday, I was uh, I used that illustration from George Jefferson, the Jefferson's TV show. And I think most of the church had no idea what I was talking about. Some people thought it was the Jetsons. And uh, they were not blessed by the message because they didn't understand the illustration. How many of you guys like watched the show, Jefferson's? Wow, not, not as many as I thought. Wow. Well, you guys are missing out. You guys are definitely missing out. There's some, there's some uh, shows online at YouTube. You guys could watch it and be, be blessed. <laughs> well, we're continuing our study, um, Mercy Ministries, and um, uh, we'll get back to our study. This will be our last study on, on this issue of deacons, deaconesses, and mercy ministry. We're going to go back to our study in Galatians. This really all came about uh, because of the centrality of the gospel and the Christian life. And um, the gospel teaches us not just about truths about God, but the gospel reveals to us the truths about the heart of God, truths about the heart of Christ, and the truths about the hearts that we are to have as Christians. So we looked at Matthew 9, 35 through 38 a few weeks ago, and we saw how Christ was engaged in spiritual ministry of proclaiming the gospel. At the same time, he met the practical needs of people that he encountered during, during his earthly ministry. Um, when he encountered people who were ill, who, were, who had leprosy, who were blind, who were deaf, who were paralyzed, he wasn't callous to their needs. He didn't, you know, pull that card of like, I'm here to die for you. you know, I'm here to give my life. I'm the culmination of redemptive history. I can't bother with these trivial needs of people. No, he, because of his compassion, because of his mercy, he invested himself. He got messy and dirty in serving people at their point of need. And this is an example that is given to all Christians. And through the gospel, this is the heart that every Christian has. Every Christian loves the gospel and has a heart of mercy. So much so, we studied in Matthew 25, that this is what separates believers from unbelievers. This is a distinguishing trait that God uses to determine whether you are a believer or not. And on that great day of God's judgment, he will separate everyone into two categories. 
people who were merciful and people who had no mercy because of Christ. People who were compassionate and caring for people's needs practically and people who showed no mercy practically. People who were just religious, trying to save themselves through works. And the sheep who understood the heart of God, therefore they received mercy, and therefore they were the most merciful to others. And um, it highlights to us um, a whole different um, side of the gospel, a whole different truth about the cross that he saved us by what moves our hearts is not just the facts about the cross, what moves our hearts, what melts our hearts, what makes us, what rescues us from our self-centeredness. We're so curbed in to ourselves. We are so obsessive about ourselves. What straightens us out is the truth about why God sent his son and why Jesus went to the cross. He, he went to the cross because of his love for us. God sent his son to the cross because of his love for us. And that chain transforms our hearts where we begin to understand and develop this heart of mercy and love towards others. And uh, what does it mean for us individually as Christians? We talked about that last week. Uh, yes, we are to, in a programmatic way, help and serve people in, in the church, in the community. We have Meals on Wheels. You should sign up for that. You know, we have people in need in our church. You should go and visit them and pray for them and, and serve them. And people in the world, you know, soup kitchens and Compassion International sponsoring children. They're right now in, in the slums in Andar through Peter Malakar. They have children waiting for sponsorship. $30 a month will help that child and their family survive. And those are great ways to serve. But that's not the be-all and end-all of mercy ministry for the Christian. Christian. Um, Luke 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan, teaches us that we are to love others as we love ourselves. We are to love others as God has loved us through Christ. Therefore, as we go about our business, as we live life in this world, um, what the gospel does is it opens our hearts. It opens our eyes. It gives us new hearing where we are able to see and perceive uh, people's needs. I, I think with, um, with religion, and in, in Luke 10, here's the priest and the Levite. They do not really see his need. They somehow justify themselves in their hearts. And they justify their callousness, their heartlessness, their lack of sympathy through all these arguments that, you know, like he probably brought it on himself. It's probably a trick, a ruse to get, uh, it's a robber to, to snare people. He doesn't deserve any help. Uh, those people, they're no good anyways. You help, you give them an inch, they'll take, take a mile. They justify their uh, self-centeredness in so many ways. But the Christian so broken by God's undeserved love for them in our day-to-day life, as we go to and fro, our eyes are open to people's needs, and we seek to meet people's needs. That's the heart of the Christian. Individually, that's what it means to us. We are to be merciful because we have been so shown mercy. And that is where we say to 
we say to God, God, you got to increase my faith. God, you need to help me understand the gospel. God, you need to break through my hard heart. You need to help me here because, you know, all of us, the command to love others, it humiliates us. It exposes our, our pride. And it's a good thing. The law is a tutor that leads us to Jesus because when the command says love others, we, f- we find ourselves failing miserably. And so the gospel becomes more dear to us individually. And that's the upward cycle that God wants us to be in. Now, what does it mean for the church as a community of believers? <coughs> and uh, we, we discovered uh, this is why God gave the second office in the church. There are only two offices in the church. Right? Uh, we have all these titles. I understand. Um, my children think that my first name is Pastor. Right? My middle name is James. My last name is Shin because everybody calls me Pastor James. And um, you know, these times pastor and minister and uh, leader and mini- you know, reverend. Nobody calls anybody reverend in our church, but reverend and, and elder and overseer and all these titles, right? But really, uh, that it, it's it confuses it, it, it produces confusion where it ought not. It's really simple. The organization of the church is very simple. There are only two offices in the church: elders and deacons. Right, elders and deacons slash deaconesses. Elders are responsible for the ministry of word and prayer and shepherding the church. Right, and and um, I can do a whole sermon series on. We have done whole sermon series on that. And then the deacons, deaconesses, their ministry is devoted to to meet the practical needs of people in the church, and the community, and in the world. Right, Galatians 6, 9, and 10, especially to the household of faith. Do good to all men, but especially the priority is believers. So priority of deacons, deaconesses, and Christians is members, believers, right? universal church, our community, the lost, and the whole world. But we are to do good works to all men. And deacons and deaconesses are devoted to facilitate and help and lead and model for the church in this mercy ministry, they're agents of Christ that lead the church in serving people that are in need um, in this world. And so, as Bob said, it is um, a culture change. It's a whole new trajectory for our church. We are going where we have never gone before. We are going towards uncharted territory. I know not where this will lead us. I, I, I know it'll be a beautiful place. It'll be a sweet place. I, uh, a pastor, a friend of mine, his wife, went visited a church, and they're one of the few churches that have, I believe, a biblical understanding of deacons, deaconesses. And so their deacons, deaconesses, really abound in mercy ministry. They're... They're, they're immersed in serving the poor and the orphans and widows and the homeless in their city. So she visited this church and she, she said, you know, what stood out to me about this church wasn't their theology and doctrine and preaching, though they're they very solid, very sound, very you know, great preaching. What stood out for her was 
their mercy ministry and their love for people. And, uh, and that's a beautiful thing. I think that's the right thing. That when a visitor visits a church, what should stand out is not the architecture, it's not the landscaping, it's not even the pulpit or the preaching or the theology or doctrine. What should stand out is, wow, these people love people. They love the lost. They love the poor. They're compassionate, merciful, caring people. That's the first thing that should stand out, that should melt their hearts so that when they hear the gospel, that they are saved and or if they're believers, they're edified. And I think that's the, that's the um, paradigm that Christ uh, uh, encouraged. You know, let your light so shine before men. What should so shine is your light of good works. Right? John 13, 34, 35, love one another so that all men will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. In 1 Peter 2, 12, right? It should abound in good works so that people would glorify God. Right? And how do they glorify God? By becoming believers themselves. Their hearts are melted by good works. So as, as believers, we should abound in good works of caring for the poor, and then this good work becomes an apologetic, the ultimate apologetic, the ultimate evidence for the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ. It is not just through our words we testify. We testify to the gospel and the power of Christ's resurrection by our lives, by our deeds, our selfless deeds. And that becomes this a power of the gospel that goes forth to save the lost. And God is glorified. So deacons and deaconesses, that is their role. They come alongside the elders, and together we serve the church to this end. It is, um, I think, so, so beautiful. God's design is so beautiful, isn't it? It's so wise. I mean, just so countercultural, right? It's, it's, it's just so, like, counter our wisdom. It's not the way I would have designed the church. Praise God for that, that it's not, you know, the church is not the way I, I wanted it or I, will, I would have willed it. God's way is so much better. Now, today's message is, you know, every sermon is important, but today's message is practically of double importance to us because there's going to be congregation participation with our message, right? We're going to have, uh, we're gonna, we require your participation, we require your involvement. How does this work out? What, what do you mean? Um, I'm going to be sharing and teaching on the qualifications, the kind of men and women that God wants uh, to uh, serve in this mercy ministry, in this compassion ministry for the church and for the world. We're going to get all these traits. And as the model that was displayed before us in Acts 6 we're going to ask you to nominate people. We're going to ask you, based upon the people that you know in our church who are members, their lives, how they've been merciful in ministering to you and to others that you know. And based upon the criteria that we studied last week in Acts 6, they're, uh, they have good reputation, they're full of the Spirit, 
<coughs> and they're wise. And then based upon the qualifications we'll look at this morning in First Timothy 3, we're going to ask you uh, during our uh, joint service, our family time at the end of this month, on January 30th, we're going to have main service. And then during our second hour, we're going to have communion service and quarterly family time where we share like just the church church administration, church events and announcements. We're going to give you, hand each one of you a paper to, for you to nominate people who you think ought to be our deacons and deaconesses. Now, if you have no one in mind, don't just put names in there, okay? <laughs> right? Don't just throw names out there because, or somebody who's like nice or kind or somebody like, I don't know, right? But someone you think ought to be, we're going to take those nominations and uh, the elders are going to, pour over them, pray, and from that list alone, we're going to choose deacons and deaconesses. Right. Uh, we're having that extra step. We're not going to make everyone that you nominate as deacons and deaconesses, because very well, like half the church becomes deacons and deaconesses, and it's not going to be good. Or, like there are some where we know more about their family situation, where it would be too difficult for them to serve at this at this time, or they need to be tested further. We're going to talk about that. They need to be believers longer. There are some character areas they need to develop that we wouldn't know, that the members wouldn't know. And so, for, But from that list, we're going to choose. And our prayer is to install these deacons and deaconesses during our anniversary ser- service on uh, April, uh, February 13th. So we hope to have deacons within a month. And uh, why, why the rush? Well, it's because uh, you know we believe we need we need deacons like yesterday, like we needed deacons like a year ago. Right? There, are, there are needs at our church right now that are not being met. I mean, real needs, and our and as I think as the body and as the leaders and the pastors, our hearts are breaking because there's a per, people in need, and we need to help them. We must help them. But again, it would not be right. For example, for me, to neglect the minister of word and prayer to meet those needs. So we feel like our hands are tied, but our hearts are tied to them. Therefore, we need deacons and deaconesses uh, as soon as possible so that we can release them to do this work. So we ask you to listen to this message, take it to heart, and prayerfully uh, nominate men and women to serve on in, in on. January 30th. <clears throat> so we're going to look at 10 qualifications for deacons, deaconesses. Now, why did God give us these requirements? Why, why must deacons, deaconesses be men and women of faith and character? Why is this so important? I mean, it's not really important in the world. Right? If I've got a, someone who's doing surgery on my body because of my lower back pain, I don't really care if he's a bad father or a husband. Do I want a good father who graduated last in his class? Or do I want a bad father who graduated first in his class? Give me that bad father. right? <laughs> Give me that bad one. I'll take him right? twice. Uh, a lawyer. right? Do I really care if he's like deceptive? You know, he doesn't have integrity. Right? You probably makes him a better lawyer, right? <laughs> Sorry, lawyers that are out there, but you know you like these jokes because you know these people. But right, you know we don't care. I mean, business people, they they're not a one-woman man, 
right? No, I mean, those things are, you can't, those things, they don't ask you about that when you uh, go in for a job interview, for, for a corporate, corporate job. <clears throat> but not in the church. Uh, I think there's just so, so many reasons. I just don't have the time. This should be like a three-sermon series. So I'm going to leave things out. So please, don't come to me after service today and say, how come you left that point out? Well, because if it was a puritanical days, we would have like eight hours where I can preach and go through every point in the Old and New Testament. But you, you don't allow me that. So it's actually your fault that I can't teach everything, right? So blame yourself, not me. If I had the time, I'll do it. But I'll just highlight two reasons why I think qualifications are important to God. First is because these are people who are going to represent the church to the members and to the world. And God, our God, is a holy God. He is a sovereign Lord. He is truth. He is righteous. He is is just. And so he wants um, pure vessels to be used um, for his name's sake. (coughs) Because... If there is sin in the leaders, if there's hypocrisy, if there's lack of integrity, if there's duplicitousness, then whose name gets blasphemed? I mean, it is the deacons, it is the church, maybe it is the leaders, but ultimately, Romans 2 says, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of the sins of the Israelites. And so the sins of our leaders taints the name of God. It diminishes the honor of God before the world and even before the church. If the leaders fail, they are ungodly men or women. So for, the holy, for holiness reason, it is important to God that choice servants are deacons and deaconesses. Secondly, character is important. These traits are important because... All ministry is relational. It's relational. Not in the world. In the world, much of work is individual. You work in teams, but everybody is off of themselves. Um, In the church, ministry is always team ministry. Every ministry is team ministry. Every ministry is relational ministry. In sports, you can be a, a part of my, I don't know, you can be a jerk and be a good athlete if it's an individual sport. That's why John McEnroe, do you guys know John McEnroe? Okay, good, okay. Right, and he was a jerk. I mean, I saw 30 for 30 ESPN on like his temper tantrums, and this guy was awful. Jimmy Connors too, but it's okay. Why? Because it's an individual sport. You can be... You can be Floyd, maybe it could be Mike Tyson, and it's okay because you're the only one going in the ring, and you know the worse character you have, the better it is, especially if you're a boxer, right? Tiger Woods, it's okay if you're a jerk, if you're like, but not because you're, it's individual sport, but not in a team sport, right? In a team sport, one guy is is proud and arrogant and is inconsiderate and is harsh with his words and is selfish. Right, and he's in, independent in a team sport. It mars the team. It destroys camaraderie. The important thing of like we saw in Seahawks yesterday, right? Even the worst team, a losing record, could win in the playoffs. Why? Because they have something called chemistry, camaraderie, unity, and and those things are indispensable for a team to be successful. And yet, a one member of that team 
starts complaining, right? Pulls a, a Randy Moss or pulls like, you know, all these guys, even Kobe Bryant sometimes. Man, that guy, he's getting me angry with this ball hogging. Like one team member, and it just it can destroy the team. All right, ministry, every ministry in the church is, is, is team ministry. Uh, I think that's God's wisdom. Paul told Timothy to, and Titus to appoint elders. Every time elder is mentioned in the New Testament, except for the generic elder in 1 Timothy 3, it's always plural. It's always plural. Deacons likewise, except for the generic deacon or appointing to a specific deacon, there's some debate about Romans 16, whether Phoebe was a deacon or not. Outside of that, it's mentioned in plural, in plural team context, concept. God desires the church is led by a plurality of elders, not a single individual. Right. So if you know really the background of our, how things really function in the church, it's really plurality of leaders, elders. God wants the church to be led by a plurality, a team, and God wants the church to be served by a team of people, plurality of men and women. And that's why character, that's why purity, that's why holiness and humility, godliness and faith is so important. Because this team breaks down. If even a single person, it's like cancer, right? They like they love friendly fire, right? They love drama, right? It's like you know, if one person thinks about themselves, they can really hurt a team in the, in the world, in business, in sports, and definitely in the church. So, um, th- this is why it's important to God these qualities. That's why it should be important to us. That's why the people you should nominate, you should look at them in terms of their holiness, righteousness, their, their, their standing, but also their relational character, right? Humble, meek. Like they get along with people. They work well with the team. They're not like the atrophies. They want to be first, right? They don't, they're not the kind of people that love the sound of their name being, being you know, spoken of, right? They're deferring, right? They, they love honoring others. Right? So those things are things to consider as well. Well, we'll look at, we'll start with four personal qualifications, four personal traits. The first one is the, the positive one, and it's the general one. And the three that follow are the negative ones. Uh, they are not to be like this, and they are more specific. That really define what it means to be the dignified. The first uh, overarching qualification for a deacon is that he is a man of dignity. He is dignified. This idea of having a sense of gravity. He invites reverence. Um, Archbishop Richard Trench has a classic work, Synonyms of the New Testament, and he, he found it very frustrating to find that English equivalent for the Hebrew and Greek idea of dignified or dignity. And his conclusion was that NIV did a real good job translating this word. A man who was worthy of respect. He is a a respectable man. He commands the honor of the church. Honor of people below him, honor of his peers, and honor of his leaders. 
three specific qualifications that add to his dignity is that he is not double-tongued. He, the Greek word means he's not two-faced. You know, someone who is uh, insincere. Someone who doesn't have a public face and a private face. Someone who doesn't say one thing to you in front of your face and says another behind your face. Or someone who treats people differently according to their, I don't know, ethnicity or gender or or their social class, or their role in the church. They don't have like two faces, or literally two tongues, but the, the metaphor is just two faces. Right? There's a consistency in his attitude and his speech to everyone. Third is, he is not to be addicted to much wine. <clears throat> Must not be a man who is known as a drunkard. He's known and he practices self-control and clear thinking. It is not a command to be abstinent. It's not a teetotaler. Right? No, it's someone who has self-control. He practices his freedom, yet with wisdom and self-restraint. He understands Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk on wine, but instead be filled with the Spirit. He's not indulgent in his freedom. Right? So there there we have Christian freedom, but there are those who just like their rallying call is freedom and they they indulge in their freedom. Right? Deacon Deaconesses, they limit their freedom. They limit their freedoms they have because they love others. Fourthly, and this is an important one, is that deacons must not be fond of dishonest gain. I think specifically Paul is calling for people where they're seeking to use ministry or the office for material gain. Paul had experiences with false teachers and he knew their motivation for ministering the church. 1 Timothy 6.5 These men who are of constant friction they have depraved minds. They are deprived of the truth. And they think that godliness is a means to gain, financial gain. Right. Titus 1, uh, 10, 11. These are these false teachers who are insubordinate, empty talkers, dis- deceivers, especially those, the circumcision party. Again, these are the legalists. The Pharisaic spirit, the Pharisaic party, they must be silenced. They are teaching for shameful gain. So they are trying to use ministry for their pocketbooks. It's very important because deacons and deaconesses will handle money. They will handle our money. They will handle your money. They will handle people's money. And the elders, our job is not to oversee the deacons and deaconess. Our job is to set them free. Our heart is to, just like the apostles in Acts 6, here you go. We're going to entrust this responsibility over to you, and here's a significant portion of our budget. Go do some good. right? And these are men and women who have 
hearts full of compassion for the church. And so we'll, we'll say to them, go have some fun. We know that for you, caring for people is your highest joy. You love serving needs. You know, go have some fun. Do some good. And we're going to set them free to do this work. We're not going to, Bob's not going to be their auditor. Right? I'm not going to be like uh, their accountant, making sure they have reimbursements for every penny or dime or, or, or such. I mean, there will be a financial accountability, but really the stewardship, the, the oversight will be given to them. So they must be men and women who are trustworthy with finances. Those are the four personal qualifications and then three spiritual qualifications. Verse 9, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Now, this is, um, <clears throat> this is challenging here. Uh, let's go through these words uh, um, more specifically. Mystery here. Paul, when Paul speaks of mystery, he's not talking about there is a s- secret truth in Christianity that only a few know about. Right? Paul always used this word mystery to refer to the content of faith that was revealed by Jesus Christ. It was a mystery in the Old Testament. But now through Jesus Christ, it has, has been revealed to the church. Romans 16, 25 through 27. According to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed. Ephesians 1 7 through 10, uh, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, making known to us the mystery of his will. So this expression, mystery of the faith, is a grand way, a beautiful way of referring to Distinctive truths of Christianity, namely the gospel. That God would save the death of his son. That God would save Jews and Gentiles. That God would establish through the gospel, the New Testament church, where Jews and Gentiles are on equal footing. These were all hidden in the Old Testament and they were revealed in the New so, so it's a way of just identifying the gospel and gospel truths. Deacons and deaconesses must be men and women who possess, who hold, what the Greek word is, they possess this truth, but they possess it with a clear conscience. Right? Clear conscience. Um, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. <coughs> So they hold this truth, they possess the gospel, not with a guilty conscience. Right? Like as deacons, deaconesses minister to the poor, if their hearts are not, if they don't have a clear, clean conscience, a pure catharsis conscience, they have this guilty conscience and they're ministering to people who are suffering and who are poor, it's a very, very difficult thing for them to, do, to be doing. We're kind of like 
throwing people into ministry for which they are not prepared. Um, Peter Malachar was sharing with us how he had a team of collegians from the U.S. And you know, from the few first days they were there, they were going to, uh, to, to do ministry and they encountered all these poor people and beggars and children who were, who were poor. And they started to break down. They came to PMI and they started, or a few of the girls started crying. And even the leader started crying and they just had a meltdown. because They couldn't handle the level of suffering and poverty they encountered for themselves. And they couldn't do ministry for that day. Right? So to throw people into this frontline ministry where their hearts, their consciences are filled with guilt and, and legalism and just, that's not a, a, a right or a safe thing to do. At the other side are people who are, consciences are so strong, they have a seared conscience. They have a calloused conscience where they walk the streets of Delhi and they, their hearts aren't, aren't moved at all. Right? They're, they're not moved emotionally whatsoever. And so they're able ministers in the church. They're like machines. They crank. right? They're like a factory. They're like doing all these things. But people that are suffering, it's just like, here's food, you know, sign this paper. right? Let me help you. And it's not with a tender and broken heart because their hearts are just like calloused. The clear conscience is a conscience <clears throat> that is not um, full of guilt, it's not seared, but it's a conscience that's not based on what they have done or not doing. It's a conscience that has been cleansed by Christ. Hebrews 9, verse 14. Uh, let's start with verse 13. If the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a high, high heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So the conscience is made clean by the sacrifice of Jesus. So they have a broken heart towards those who are suffering, and their hearts are strengthened by the gospel and their hearts are steady, and they're able to do the work of the ministry, but their hearts are not hard because they're softened by Jesus. Right? This is someone who holds the mystery of the faith, the message of the cross, and yet they have a clear conscience because it is this truth that has cleansed, cleansed them. Right? So they're not defiled either way. Second um, spiritual qualification is verse 10. <clears throat> Let them be Test it first, and then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. So it shouldn't be a new convert. It shouldn't be a young believer. It shouldn't be someone who's just eager to serve. They should be in the body for a while, and that's for the elders to determine. And then if they prove themselves blameless, let them serve. And let me just um, qualify this a little bit here. with Actually, not just this, but all the qualifications there are two ways to like, um, you know, miss the point of these qualifications. There are two ways to kind of, um, um, kind of have a wrong approach. The first is to obviously have a too low of a standard, 
right? And so the church today is captive to low standards, to almost no standards to leadership in the church. So, so many churches that we know, anyone and everyone is an elder or a deacon, right? And that has, uh, t- to some, irreparably harmed and damaged the church and Christian testimony. So we don't want that. We don't want low standards. But we don't want to react to that and have standards that are way too high, where only Jesus and the Apostle Paul can serve as elders and deacons, right? where no one can serve because our standard is like perfect righteousness and perfect compassion. Right? Uh, these qualifications are degreed qualifications. They're not absolute. Blamelessness right? is degreed. It's not yes or no. It's relative to the congregation. So the illustration might be, you know, I might be an above average basketball player if I play against our youth group, right? <laughs> but if I play, you know, maybe against Joe, I wouldn't be an above average basketball player. It's all relative, right? So when I'm playing with the youth students, you know, I'm Kobe, everybody else is Kwame. <laughs> Let's play. But if I'm playing at a varsity college in a intramural league, then I'm Kwame. Everybody else is Kobe. Right? It's relative to the congregation. So our church is a young church. To expect you know, a godly, mature, uh, older, experienced you know, elders and deacons, that's just not realistic. So relative to our congregation, they've been tested. They've been found to be above blame. Like we can't blame them for anything because relative to our body, they're seen as mature. And the final one is that they are good managers of their household. They are, verse 12, a husband of but one wife. And really in the Greek there, it's one woman man. Three words. One, gune, andros, right? So, it's, so it means it's not prohibiting someone who's been divorced or someone who, who lost his wife. No, it's describing a man whose heart is with his wife. He's devoted to his wife. Right? His priority is wife over against his job, his ministry, or, 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 or missions in the world. His heart is devoted to her, not to many women. He's not a flirt. He's not all over the place. He's devoted to his wife. And secondly, he's a manager, good manager of his household as well, and his children. So his children respect him. He garners trust and respect from his own family. And he's a good manager, a good leader of his own household. It's not like his family's out of order. He, his family's a mess and he's serving in the church where his identity is wrapped around what he does in the church. No, he's first and foremost ministering in his household. Out of the overflow of that, he's ministering in the church. So those are the qualifications for deacons. Now in verse <coughs> um, 8, 11... Excuse me, let's go back to 1 Timothy. Um, I want to make sure I get this reference right. Uh, verse 11, um, here is a very important interpretive issue. Um, in our context, it's less of a controversy. I don't even have to defend this because the churches that we are close to, that we trust, they all hold the deaconesses. But there are good teachers out there, good churches that believe that these are wives of deacons, that women 
shouldn't be deaconesses. Um, um, you look at that word in the Greek in verse 11, and the word is gune. The plural is gunaikos. It's just simply women. And if you have an ESV Bible, I love this translation, but the word there, altus, that is not in the Greek. And uh, these ESV translators, you know, some of them, they believe in the deacon's wives. They put it there, but they shouldn't have done that because that word is not in the Greek. It's just women, right? So it's an interpretive issue. Is it wives or women? Now, want to make sure we understand women are to serve as deacons. Everybody agrees with that. The question is, can it be any woman or does, it, does she have to be the wife of a deacon? Right, the issue is not, can women serve as deaconesses? No. The question is, does her husband have to be a deacon for her to be served as a deaconess? And um, I like here the New American Standard translation, women must likewise be dignified, malicious gossips, temperate, faithful in all things. Um, why do I believe this? Because... Um, Verse 11, likewise, tells us it's another class of people that Paul is addressing. He talked about elders, and then likewise deacons, and then he uses this word again, likewise, to indicate a different class of people. And then secondly, it would seem strange that Paul would give qualifications for deacons' wives and not elders' wives. Right? If the wives of leaders are so important that they should be qualified, then why aren't the wives of elders listed and given qualifications for here? There is no mention about wives of elders, right? And so he's talking, I believe, about women and not um, wives of deacons. Um, church history is not determinative, but it helps us. Church history tells us um, the early readers of the New Testament, how they understood it and how they applied it in their church. And all the way to A.D. 112, um, the governor of Bithynia, Pliny, talks about how Christians, there were deaconesses in the church serving in their local congregation. Um, in A.D. 220, there was a book of church order called the Daskali Apostorum, and in that church order book, there's a lengthy description of deaconesses doing the work. In Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD also speak of deaconesses and their work. Um, somebody have said, well, why doesn't Paul use the word deaconess uh, here? Why does he use gune? Well, it's because that word didn't exist until 325 A.D. in the 4th century. So Paul only had uh, uh, the option of a woman deacon or just women. So it seems plausible why he would do that. The word didn't exist, so he's talking about women deacons who are serving in the church alongside deacons. Really, the, the blowback is because in many churches, deacons, they don't do mercy ministry Deacons are the, you know, the board of demons, you know, board of deacons, right? The real leaders of a church are the deacons, and the pastor is hired as an employee. So he signs a contract, and he's employed, and he 
does the work of the ministry. The deacons oversee the church and oversee the pastor. And so for them, they can't have women deacons because then that's women leading the church. Well, the answer to that problem is not to not allow women to serve as deacons. The answer is their understanding of deacons is wrong. The church is led not by deacons, but by elders, men only. But because the office of deacons, diaconate ministry, is service ministry, it's not leading, preaching, and teaching, that it's open to men and women to serve. That makes sense, right? So for deaconesses, three qualifications are given, or four qualifications, excuse me. They are to be, again, dignified, worthy of respect. So fellow women, respect her. Right? She garners a trust. She's reputable, stately. She's not a slanderer. This is kind of important because she gets the inside information about what's going on in the church. She hears about the, you know, marriage problems, financial problems, right? like ch- problems with children, and difficult, sensitive information is given to her. And if she is a slanderer, right, or if she is, her heart is such that she would use this to slander people, malicious gossip, it could really greatly hinder the diaconate ministry and really harm the body, even divide the body. She must be a woman who is, has her speech under control. She is third, sober-minded, clear-minded, right? She has her heart, her mind, her emotions, her faculties under control. She is sensible, right? She is sensible. She is wise. And fourthly, she's trustworthy in everything. Not limited to any one sphere, but she's faithful. Whether it's her walk with Christ, whether it's her relationships in the church, whether it's her husband, children, at her work, she is faithful. Verse 13, Paul understands what, uh, how, how difficult this work is. Uh, these men and women will greatly sacrifice for the work of the ministry in the church. And so he highlights to them two rewards that are reserved for those deacons and deaconesses who serve well. All right, so again, for, the, for our future deacons, deaconesses, this is only if you serve well, right? Not just by serving. Uh, if you serve poorly, you don't get this. But if you serve kalos, kaleidoscope, beautifully, you serve in a, just a sweet way, then the two rewards are you gain a good standing for yourself, the standing is bathmas. It's a degree of honor, an honorable standing. Your, your reputation is lifted high within the church, right? And um, this is really countercultural, especially when it was written. Um, Plato, Plato had said uh, that uh, servants... How can a man be happy when he has to serve anyone? Right. So in the Greek mindset, menial service was not dignified. If you had to serve anyone, then it was a harsh reality, harsh existence. And you, would, you should try anything, in po- anything possible to avoid any kind of service. In fact, aristocrats, it was their common thing to spit on servants because it was such, seen as such a lowly, lowly state of life. And so people would try to avoid service work as much as possible. And then Christ upended that by his model, right? He said, you want to be great? The one who is great is the one who serves. 
so much so I came not to be deaconed, right? Serve, not to be deaconed. I came to deacon and to give my life as a ransom for many. So Christ, by his life and by his word, reversed this cultural perception of servants and he elevated servanthood by himself and for the people in the church. And so in the church, we have deacons and deaconesses who serve well and they gain honor in our midst. Right? They are esteemed. They are acknowledged. Give honor to whom honor is due. So the elders and pastors in the whole church honor these men and women for serving as deacons and deaconesses. And then finally, they also gain, same thing from verse 13, they gain great standing and they gain great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. No, I'm just going to summarize this and close our time. What do they gain? By their physical service to the church, they gain spiritual benefit. Their work is physical in nature, but what they receive in return is where their faith is increased. Their faith is strengthened. Their understanding of Christ and the gospel matures and grows by their work. It is not a work where they just spend themselves and get nothing in return. What they get in return something so much more beautiful, the spiritual reward of gospel renewal. And not just for them, but it has a ripple effect for the whole church. Whereas the whole church, as we follow their lead and serve in, in this mercy ministry, what we get back is a spirit, right? Re- spiritual revival. Right? We grow in our understanding of the gospel. We understand... The, And we experience the sweetness, the beauty, the truth of Christ. So it's not like TBN. You give a dollar, God will give you a hundred dollars. No. Mercy ministry, you give a dollar. What God gives you is the Holy Spirit. Where you understand more the heart of God. I think certain experiences in a little little way, right? In a little way, that, that boy sitting on the corner facing the wall because he can't control himself. We adopted him a few years ago. And uh, so the foster system, and serving serving him, and um, adopting him, doing, trying to care for people in the world. What do we get back, right? Do we get back honor from him? No. Right? What do we get back? We don't get anything practical from him. A little bit, but what, what we really got back was through this mercy ministry, we have a living reminder of the gospel to us of our adoption. We are reminded of our sinfulness, how sinful sinful we are, and how helpless we were before we were adopted by God. And how like, you know, he was with us for about two years and for a while he was going to return to his birth mom who was in drug rehab. And our heart was, man, he's never going to remember anything that we did. He'll have no idea about how Soren you know, stayed up at night and cared for him and how I you know, held him once in a while. <laughs> All these good things. You have no idea, no recollection because he's so young. And we thought, man, that's how we are with God. God is faithful to us through Christ. Every single moment of our lives that we have, we're so self had no idea. It reminds us of the gospel. So we gain so much spiritually because of our 
practical ministry. Well, same thing for deacons, deaconesses. They have a great reward of spiritual reward of the gospel and this ripple effect of the whole church where all of us, as God allows us to serve in mercy ministry, what we get in return is increasing our faith in the gospel of Christ, what he has done for us. Let's pray. Oh God, we do thank you for leading our church. Holy Spirit, we thank you for opening our eyes and our hearts to see the wonders of your word, things that we had missed with our eyes of flesh, now with our eyes of faith. You're allowing us to see a grander, a more beautiful picture of who we are and what we are to do as a church in this world. We're in a dark world. Um, where people are suffering and in need, and you have saved us that we might be your servants in this world, that we might be salt and light, and be a city on a hill shining its light of good deeds, so that you might be glorified before in, in, in this world. So God, we just thank you for this privilege you have given to us, and we pray uh, that you would raise up God-fearing deacons and deaconesses, that you will superintend the whole process. And Lord, we pray for our deacons, deaconesses to be. Lord, that you would even now prepare their hearts and, and grant them grace and that their hearts be sprinkled with the blood of Christ, that they be cleansed and pure. They will serve you, O oh God, with a motivation out of your love for them and nothing else. And God, that together with the elders and with the whole church, that these choice servants would allow us, O oh God, to fulfill uh, your heart here in our community and throughout the world. Thank you and pray all this in your son's name. Amen.